Hey everyone, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Nathaniel. And I'm Daenerys, and today we're speaking with Tayemba Jess, a professor of English at the College of Staten Island and the author of two books of poetry, Lead Belly and Olio. Olio received the 2017 Pulitzer Prize and an outstanding contribution to publishing citation from the Black Caucus of the American Library Association, among other awards. Tayemba graduated from New York University and has received fellowships from the National Endowment for the Arts, the Illinois Arts Council, and the Guggenheim Memorial Fellowship. Thank you for joining us. Hi, great to be here. So our first question for you, we just want to get to know a little bit more about you. How did you first become interested in writing poetry? Uh, Gee, I think I was about 15 or so, and I was, uh, I don't know, I was pretty much an avid reader. And I, uh, it just, I just started writing, uh, writing poems in Detroit in, in my bedroom. And, uh, then I, uh, I won a little, uh, second prize in a little poetry contest when, as I was leaving Detroit, uh, NAACP Axel, uh, competition. And that kind of pushed me a little further in that direction. And I went to college, I almost stopped being uh, interested in writing poetry at all. Thankfully, I survived that. And I uh, emerged on the other side with, uh, through the mentorship of uh, uh, one person in particular, Sterling Plump, who was uh, one of my mentors in my college education, and uh, came back on the other side into poetry. So, you know, ever since then, it just kind of, just kind of um, became a path for me. And one thing you mentioned just now about um, almost stopping writing poetry during college. Um, I I had seen um, there was a New York Times article um, in which you were you were mentioned in, and um, it was with like the CUNY schools um, and professors discussing poetry really. And you know I took like I I've had two classes that are kind of poetry related, but you know I'm majoring in government and public policy. Um, Obviously, you you majored in like public policy at University of Chicago. How do you think people can stay interested in poetry and keep it as like part of their creative process um, to not just like only write like laws and, and stuff like that? Like, what is the role of poetry in, in colleges, maybe? Well, you know, uh, the great thing about poetry is that it's so expansive and it's it's so uh, experimental. It's so it has so many different forms. It's about so many different subjects and there's so many, such a wider variety of people getting published these days that, uh, that I think that it's, it's a lot, there's a lot more access points for people to, uh, to get into poetry and find a poet that they, that they really dig, that, that, that speaks to them. And I think that's really the key is, is finding a poet that, that speaks to them and, and that and that they can they can get into uh, you know a lot of people have this notion about poetry that it's supposed to be something that you only barely understand that you have to uh, you have to um, uh, walk away completely befuddled by the uh, by the experience by the experience of reading it that um, uh, it's um, in order to write it, you have to, you absolutely have to, you know, follow these rules and those rules, et cetera. 
and really all of that's not 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 the case i think a lot uh, uh, studying it you start to learn how people approach words and ideas in a in a very generally rather compact and economical way and are able to say the most with the least um and are and i would also say that uh, people learn that well I, I would i would i would uh submit that poetry is at the uh is in all good writing to a certain degree the use of metaphor you know similes and the use of uh of uh of imagery etc all of those things are really critical to good writing period so um I think I th that's the way I think people should should understand poetry is that it's not just stuff written by people who have been dead for at least 50 years. It's not just, you know, what you see on the slam stage. It's not just, uh, <clears throat> you know, highly technical and uh, and um, uh, abstract. It's not just um, the run of the day rhyme that you might might hear it's all of those things and more and you can access it from whatever ever point that you want to it's a really beautiful way of putting it thank you i think one thing that stood out to me from what you said is this idea of studying other people's way of using words and for me that really reminds me um, of how being creative and producing creative work is kind of a, a collaborative exercise. And so I'm wondering if you have ever formed um, a community of poets or have you, if you found that community and maybe how your poetry interacts with the work of other contemporary poets or those around you. Well, I uh, was, I've been very fortunate to have been member, a member of various communities. I would say from the beginning, you know, I would go to open mics and open mics have a kind of community. You develop a kind of community. You see people at the open mic all the time and they and you talk about poetry, you talk about literature and ideas, etc. And you kind of, you know, you know, uh, create community in that way. And then I was also part of uh, I was on a slam team. I was as, uh, part of the slam team at the Green Mill in Chicago which is where SLAM actually started, uh, courtesy Mark Smith. And uh, I got to see some of the greats in SLAM, particularly, uh, particularly uh, Patricia Smith, who, I, who is my colleague now at, uh, at CUNY, Staten Island. And, uh, and, 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 and that, that was really an integral part of my community building. Also, I was very, very fortunate in that uh, I was uh, one of the uh, one of the members of the second year of an organization called Cave Canem, that's C A V E C A N E M, which is a fellowship of Black poets that uh, started in '96. I I was fortunate enough to join in '97, and it's a, a workshop essentially that happens every year for a week. You can attend for three years, and and uh, you just fellowship with other poets and workshop your work, and that was a, a really critical uh, organization for me that I've been involved with over the last twenty five years, and I I feel very fortunate that now I am uh, president of the board of directors of that organization. So 
uh, community is really, you know, when it, the, the reality is, is that when it comes down to uh, writing, it's really going to be you and the page alone, period. That's just, there's really, there's not a lot of ways around that. I mean, of course, there is communal writing, and, I, and that's a whole, that's a whole kind of spectrum that, uh, that I'm not as familiar with, to be completely honest. But I know that people participate that in that, and it's something worth exploring like writing a joint project together. But for the most part, you know, uh, when people approach the page, it's going to be them, silence, their pen, and a paper. But surrounding that is the community of voices that they have learned from, that they've, uh, had, uh, they've had discussions with, arguments with, laughed with, you know, uh, um, gone over other people's work with. And, uh, and all of that kind of starts to to influence or give uh, have some kind of impetus or some kind of uh, 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 voice in what they bring to the page. Touching on the aspect of community a bit more, um, you know, in in Olio, I think one of the reasons why it was so like deservingly. Um, like awarded and given the recognition that it deserves, um, I think is the way in which you've been able to bring back stories and voices that have kind of become lost or forgotten about and kind of thinking about community in that regard. Um, do you feel like you're kind of serving as the, I don't know, a, a sort of like an ambassador to this community in the past with your poems? Yeah, you know, uh, speaking about Olio, you, Olio is a uh, just to, just for your audience's sake, Olio is, means a um, a launch of ingredients that come together to form, in the culinary sense, a meal, in the literary sense, a book that has various forms in it. And in the in the in the tradition of American theater, the Olio is the middle part of the minstrel show. And the minstrel show, is, of course, started in the early 19th century, uh, was a kind of uh, theatrical production put together by white folks to denigrate black people. It, was, it served as a kind of uh, psychological warfare uh, throughout the 19th and early 20th, and there are vestiges of it, of it that exist today in the 21st century. Um, but uh, the, the olio would be the middle part in which a... a a variety of acts would come together and produce a show. And uh, in Olio, you find a variety of different uh, black creatives who are trying to bring their work into fruition in its, in, in its fullness and, and with all of its humanity and, and all, of its, uh, all of its joy and all of its triumphs and all of its tribulations. Um, against the backdrop of this minstrel show, which which attempted to, you know, uh, uh, attempted to ca uh, make caricatures of black folks, and so in that sense, they 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 have a community, and I am I am what one might call the interlocutor of that uh, of that show. I am the one who is stepping in to try and introduce the acts and bring them point from you no know, bring one on and bring the other one on etc and to kind of uh and, and to provide this this platform which is in the te the pages of the book 
for them to tell their stories, you know, which are really, you know, I, and, you know, they were fascinating to me. So I just hope they will be interesting to, to other people. Yeah. And I see that you've actually you've got a copy of the book with you now. I was wondering if you'd be willing to maybe read a short excerpt of one of the poems for that for us. I think that would be a sure. really great yeah. experience. Yeah, definitely. Sure. Um, I have uh, I, I have one. I, I think I'll read uh, something from uh, from a guy named Blind Boone. Blind Boone was uh, uh, born 1865, became an amazing piano player. Um, his family were slaves. Uh, he was born right at the end at the end of the Civil War, and his actually the uh, people who his family were held by were the descendants of Daniel Boone. So this is a uh, roots of Boone in the voice of uh, of uh, Blind Boone. Roots of Boone. My roots burrow down to Colonel Daniel Boone and his frontier town of Boonesboro, where the brown-skinned dwellers were his, brought and paid for by the folk hero of wild liberty, the bowie-knifed fighter of Indians. They were my kin, those slaving in the shadows of history. Transports from African shores to old Kentucky and later Missouri. I've often wondered, when Boone was taken captive by the Shawnee, when they kidnapped members of his family and he was forced to scramble for his life, if he stopped to ponder on the lives he'd bonded into slavery. Perhaps he did. I'll never know if he ever once intended to free the slaves of Boonesboro. He never made it so. Seems one man's master is a country's idol when one side of the tale is all that gets shown. Well, either way, those kin survived long enough to get me here on this piano where I can sing on these keys the notes they might have sung if Daniel Boone had truly lived his legend of freedom. Thank you for reading that. It's it's really powerful, especially hearing it from the author. Um, Thank you. And I something that just the, the way in which you're reading it now um, reminds me of. Uh, do you know Anna Diaveri Smith, the, the oh, yeah. theater mm -hmm. artist? Mm -hmm. um, Not personally, but yes. yeah. Um, she actually she spoke at here at the Athenaeum um, not too long ago, mm. and. Something that I was thinking about, just looking at all of your work and, and your, your background, um, and especially showcased in the way that you just read this poem, um, I think something so interesting about Anna Diaveri Smith is the way in which she's, like, she does the interview, and then she is, like, acting it out and really giving a voice that isn't always um, seen if you're just, like, reading an interview or just you see an excerpt of something. And... I, I kind of see that occurring like just now in, in the reading. I think you're really giving a voice to people who um, stories that may have been forgotten or, or somewhat lost to time. Um, and all that background uh, brings me to this, this question that I was trying to get to, um, which is for like writing a poem, 
and and trying to figure out the audience of it. Um, what what is kind of like your mindset going into all of that? Like, and and how do you actually craft one of these poems? Like, what is the um, the time and resources you need to to find these stories, and then how do you process them, develop develop them, and then read them as as you just did and and bring these stories to life well it's interesting what you were interested you would mention uh anna devere smith because my familiarity with her is in her ability to go into roles and portray different people on on the stage she, she inhabits their their uh their consciousness so to speak mm -hmm. and and i guess what i'm doing is i'm writing in persona so i'm trying to Right in the voices of various people, um, and and I think that 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 requires you know for one research I do, I try and do as much research as I can on the subjects because I feel it's very important to get their story as correct as I possibly can, um, and so that involves you know just a lot of books. There's a bibliography at the back of the book, um, and you, you can see all the sources <laughs> that I use to get the information to build to get a glimpse into these you know into the lives of these 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 people um i think you know the the other part is um you know empathy trying to have empathy for what they were going through and, and what they were what they were experiencing and um and 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 thinking about how they might have felt under different different circumstances so I, I think that's that answers your question. I might have lost track a little bit, but uh, that that is what I'm trying to do, and I think that's the kind of similarity with with what uh, uh, Anna Devere Smith is is attempting to do. Mm. I just go back in time and and work with people who are no longer here, but they 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 just you know they just I I it, it made me uh, upset that I didn't know about these people, to be quite frank. And it made me feel like I should have learned about these people when I was in grade school. And so this was an effort to bring these folks, you know, onto the page in a way that they could be they could be heard and remembered. Yeah. I really like the way that you put that. Um, I think you really express uh, the way that you've used poetry to kind of make the make make history or not even make, but just bring back this history. What do you think is the advantage of using a creative medium like poetry to do this work, you know, bring new voices into the historical narrative versus, you know, traditional forms like a history book like we all used when we were learning about it? Yeah, you know, that's interesting because, you know, we, we, we tend to, inc you know, well, first off, first, as soon as you say the word history, people start to fall asleep. <laughs> that's the reality and then another thing they fall asleep with is the, is the word poetry so so uh, uh, recognizing that I, I think the, the the real idea is story you know is really that's what I, I do I'm mostly a storyteller I mean poetry happens to be the vehicle that I use to tell stories through um, and um, it it it, it in terms of like the the audience, it I, I think I just yes this that's something that, that you had asked about earlier the audience part of the audience is really the subject themselves, you know because I'm, I'm in the process of you know researching Bly Boone and that means hours and hours of reading through you know 
stuff about him and his life, et cetera. And in 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 a way, I you know you become in communication with him, you know, with this subject that you're trying to have respect for, and you also you know, or in the case of Lead Belly, uh, you know, have to tell some things about him that weren't that weren't that pleasant, you know. So it's like you're saying, you know, you really try to uh, uh, find out what the what the things that were that that made these people survive and and what they and the decisions that they had to make in order to in order to go beyond survival into thriving which are the same kind of decisions that we have to make on a regular basis you know am i gonna am i gonna you know uh take this money to do that or am i going to uh preserve my integrity in such and such a way you know, am I going to uh, am I going to take the money and still try and preserve my integrity? And, and these are really, frankly, the still still the kind of uh, issues that face black artists and artists of color and and, and women artists, and queer artists. I think that these are the same kinds of uh, of questions that they have to deal with on a regular basis today. It's just and and that is the that is that's what I'm looking for is that kind of I'm talking about the 19th century, but I'm really also thinking about the 21st century and the present and how there's linkages between the two. That's a long-winded answer. I don't know if I got to your question. <laughs> <laughs> no, you absolutely did. I really enjoyed hearing about, especially that last part, just about connecting what you're doing now and like people's situations now right. to what people were going through back then. Because they are linked. They are linked. The same, you know, uh, if not the exact same processes are in play or the exact same dynamics are in play, then shadows of those dynamics are in play and, and manifestations of those dynamics are still in, in play from the 19th through the 21st century. So, I, I think that answer that you just gave um, makes me think about two things and um, Apologies to the listeners. I'm going to do my best to string this together in a coherent way. Um, something you mentioned earlier was um, kind of like things that are forgotten about um, or just not given the attention they deserve. Like you were talking about not knowing about some of these people um, until you're doing the research and like you're an adult now, you're a professor, um, all of these things. You know, it, it, it reminded me of um, the continued lack of knowledge about the Tulsa race massacre mm. and how even the people in mm -hmm. Tulsa were not able to discuss what happened. Right. Um, and you, you mentioned as well, like, there are vestiges of the minstrel show that still occur in the 21st century. Mm -hmm. And just all of that is making me think that, like, kind of your role and um, other people's roles in, in bringing all of these... Um, kind of like undertold histories to light. I think it, it's like a grassroots effort, really. Um, and I think to to combat the extent of um, the shadows that you mentioned of of the mystical shows that still exist mm -hmm. today. Um, how do you think? Like, wh what is your role in in combating that? Like, I I think obviously, like writing this book. Um, has gotten a lot of attention, and I 
I think what what I'm trying to ask is, um, it, it's obviously like a great task that we're up against right now, um, bringing all these stories to to light and not having people just deny that they even happened. Mm -hmm. um, how do you think we could go about doing all of that? Like, I don't, I understand it's a very big question. Um, right, just some right. thoughts on on any of that. Well, you know, I think I think that um, that that is part of the that is a really difficult national question. In other words, how does one come to grips with one's past, you know, and how does one come to grips with, um, you know, the the you know the bloody legacies of genocide and slavery, and uh, uh, the first step is in acknowledging that these things actually happened and that they were what they were. And these, you know, efforts through poetry and through and through art are are part of the process of bringing it into national conversation, right? And that is that is a consciousness lifting exercise that hopefully that that hopefully creates the atmosphere for actual, let's say, legislative or or some kind of uh, material change. I'm not. I'm not trying to be pie in the sky, or whatever. You know, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. Don't have any delusions about, you know, uh, about the about the the overarching power of of uh, of say one poem or a book of poems. What I but what I will say is that is that the the impetus to go to the page to create these poems has in mind the idea that there that these pe that these struggles will be recognized and redeemed, and that that is that has to come through some degree of of uh, public consciousness raising and uh, some degree of uh, of uh, public action eventually. Yeah, I I, I think that's. Definitely a great way to put it. And um, just the phrase like creating the atmosphere needed, I think kind of sums it up all very well. Um, yeah, I thank you. Thank you for that answer. Well, I hope to our listeners that, you know, those thoughts were really helpful if you're also thinking about the same question. Um, but unfortunately, that is all the time that we have today. So thank you so much, Tayimba, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. It's and been great. To all of our listeners, remember to stay hungry. Mm -hmm.